Here's my question. What is the FBI hiding? Watch this. We just had an explosion out there. It blew up in the air and then we saw two fireballs go down into the water. On July 17th, 1996, TWA Flight 800 exploded in the sky. A missile or some kind of streaking object was seen in the sky at the same time TWA Flight 800 exploded. I saw an object rise out of the ocean. It was moving very rapidly. And then start climbing, passing my altitude, and the explosion. And the very next day, the FBI came to talk to me and said, you did not see that, you saw nothing. The TWA Flight 800 in-flight breakup was initiated by a fuel air explosion in the center wing tank. We didn't find any part of the airplane that indicated a mechanical failure. The explosive forces came from outside the airplane, not the center fuel tank. The FBI did all the interviewing of eyewitnesses. No witness was ever allowed to testify. For that kind of cover-up to be tolerated, it makes me fighting mad. TWA Flight 800, an Epic's original documentary. CBS investigative reporter Christina Borgeson was on that story when that plane crashed, 230 people died, but... The FBI weirdly got involved and halted her ability to get to the facts. And CBS complied and said, you can't cover this. Christina is going to join me live and get to the bottom of what's really going on with the FBI. Um, Since she left CBS, she's on to other investigations. We're going to dig all the way into it before she comes on live. Shout out to the sponsor of my coverage now gas is $7 a gallon in some areas and 10-year-old Honda Civics will set you back 20000 rent, 2000 a month. Welcome to 8.6% inflation, and it doesn't look like it's getting better anytime soon. What can you do? You can try trading stock or buy mutual funds, but returns are sinking fast. You'd have to make at least 10% with charges just to break even. You might have heard about gold IRAs, but don't know much about them. That's why Noble Gold has a team of experts at the other end of the phone. They'll put you straight on what you can and can't do to get yourself to financial safety again. And if you're quick, they'll be giving away an incredible one-tenth ounce American Eagle gold-proof coin with every qualifying IRA or 401k rollover. You can't go wrong with Noble Gold. Call the team now, 877-646-5347, or find out more by visiting noblegoldinvestments.com. Link down in my description gets you your free gold guide. All right, I'm excited to introduce you guys to Christina Borgeson, formerly of CBS National News. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Ivory. And now you run the Whistleblower Newsroom. You have a radio show and you're still on the case of what is not being covered and needs to be exposed as an investigative journalist. So first things first, my viewers were really interested in what happened in 1996. Um, I guess it was... 26 years ago this month, we're almost at the anniversary. Um, So TWA Flight 800 crashes, killing 230 people. You were assigned to that story. Take me through what happened. And by the way, viewers, a lot of you guys were asking about the passenger list. Was this thing missled down? Uh, Christina has a passenger list too. We'll get to that. But take me through the story. 
Actually, the plane exploded in midair on its way to Paris right after it took off, practically, uh, off the coast of Long Island. And actually, it's not just what the FBI is hiding, because the CIA was on scene right away. The FBI was on scene right away. Of course, the National Transportation Safety Board was on scene. And the Navy was on scene. So I was assigned to look into it. And I was working with a guy named Paul Paul Raganese. He was uh, CBS's law enforcement consultant who happened to be a bomb squad and former NYPD bomb squad guy. And he knew these divers who were good Navy divers, not the Navy divers, but NYPD divers who were going to go down and dive with the Navy divers. But the Navy divers came from the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Unit uh, from Fort Monmouth in, in New Jersey. And for a week, they dove by themselves. Nobody was allowed to go in there with them. And fi- and the NYPD divers were a little mm, skeptical about that. Then they were allowed to dive, but only in prescribed areas. So Paul was, was very suspicious and he spoke to them and the word at the NTSB and among the divers was, well, this is probably a bomb or a missile. So, you know, the FBI is coming in to check out whether it was a crime scene, basically, because the only way the FBI is allowed to take over an investigation is if they have a reason to believe that the circumstances are criminal. They, the FBI never officially asked the and told the NTSB we're coming in because a crime has occurred or we have reason to believe a crime has occurred. They never did that officially. Anyway, um, I was sent a while, I was assigned to look into the crash, and I was sent a piece of seat foam from inside the investigation. They came from a a party to the investigation who wanted um, a journalist to test it. And the journalist, I happened to know him, he was a former cop married to a TWA employee who said, look, you have a bigger platform. Will you test this? They say it's solid rocket missile fuel. I've already had an elemental analysis done and it looks like solid rocket missile fuel. And I said, look, if this is BS, you're going to be exposed big time. I hope you don't mind, but I'll I'll do it. He FedExed it to me and apparently the FBI had been surveilling him. And the minute I received it, I put it in my desk. I got 60 minutes, Josh Howard's approval to have it tested. And uh, about a day or two later, the FBI showed up and said I had a piece of stolen material, which it hadn't been stolen. And CBS just gave it right back. And I got my walking papers shortly thereafter. So they fired you? They let me go. And this was going to be featured on 60 Minutes. I was going to do a piece for 60 Minutes. So did, did 60 Minutes ever cover it? Not in the way I was going to cover it. I, I actually did an interview with the guy who sent me the piece of seat foam. I did an interview and I went down to what's called the fishbowl, which is where all the news, uh, the, the, you know, Dan rather Dan rather's evening new, news uh, cast people who write the stories and so on uh, are, and also the editors and so on. And, and um, one of the, one of the top guys there, he was on the phone with somebody and with a the Washington correspondent who was saying, we're not going to air this interview. This interview will not be aired. And this was an interview with Jim Sanders, 
who was the former cop who was introduced to the guy inside the official government investigation who had sent him the piece of seat foam, a piece of seat foam that had this red residue on it that he subsequently had tested and then wanted me to test. So it was clear from the very beginning that a cover up was underway. Clear. Wow. And so I, you know, <laughs> I always let go after being told I had such a brilliant future there because I had won an Emmy the, the year before and I was up for another Emmy that year. And I was actually brought into John Klein's office and told what a brilliant future. I and, who, and who was John Klein? John Klein had, had uh, become, uh, I think he'd become, uh, he wasn't president of CBS news. I forget. He became, he had, he had been bumped up and uh, he had a documentary unit too. Anyway, he had brought me in and, and, said I had this brilliant future and then boom, this happened. And I was, I was out. And so for, here you are uh, an Emmy winning reporter correspondent yeah. and they abruptly let you go. Just what? a reporter, not a correspondent. Oh, okay. And what was your, what was their reasoning? Oh, letting you go? I didn't get a reason. And the only reason I, I tell you, I felt like my soul was sucked out. And what happened was all of a sudden my phone started ringing. I started getting calls from, all over, from reporters in the U.S. and from other places like Japan. And I thought, well, how did that happen? And somebody at CBS, because my cootie factor was very high once everybody knew what had happened to me, that the FBI had come. And, wow. you know, CBS, without so much as a word or a question, just gave that piece back. And um, so nobody would talk to me or whatever, but somebody called around and all of a sudden I was getting calls from journalists who wanted me. A Current Affair. I don't know if you remember. You're too young to remember that show, but it was one of those, one of those, you know, inquirer type TV shows. Mm-hmm. You know, they were among the first to call. But yeah, so. And I, after that, I just wanted to forget about it. You know, I, I but I couldn't. I couldn't because my son was a 10-year-old unaccompanied minor on Air France five minutes behind TWA on the same track that TWA was on when it blew up. And my neighbor had called me when it happened and said, was that your son on the plane? And for a moment, I didn't know what plane she was talking about. And I can't describe the feeling that I had. It was like hot oil poured on my brain. I just started dry heaving and vomiting. And and, um, and I remembered that feeling. So I f- for, I've remembered that feeling up until now. It's very immediate, even when I talk about it. And I think that's what helped me, not helped me, but forced me to persist. You could so relate to Completely. The families of the dead, because you thought your son w- was one of them for a moment. Completely, yes. Yeah, for a minute, I thought my son was, was one of them. So you had a great resume, and I, I read that ABC ended up wanting to work with you after that. <laughs> I know, I got this call, and uh, this guy says to me, uh, this producer, he says, Hey, Christina, I want you to tell the story of TWA. We're doing this new, it's a new series. It's called Declassified. We're doing a, they were just doing a, just a pilot, Ivory, just a pilot. So I had 
a 12 minute piece to do for this pilot. And that this was going to be on the entertainment side, but it was going to be like a very slick 60 minutes on the entertainment side. Mm. And it was going to be hosted by Oliver Stone. And so I was like, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do the TWA thing. And he goes, no, no, no. I said, well, what makes you think I'll be able to tell the story that I want to tell? He goes, oh, consider this a ripping reality. You'll be able to tell it. And I was like, okay. Literally, I start planning this eyewitness shoot, a group eyewitness shoot with my co-producer, Kelly O'Meara, another investigative reporter. And our car gets broken into at night when we first, when we arrive in New York, they take her computer and all our TWA papers and leave everything else behind, golf clubs, other expensive items in the trunk. Very, by the way, very uh, clean job. They didn't destroy the lock. And then a few days later, we were told to stand down that uh, we were no longer going to do we were no longer going to do this show. They stand down. And then about a few days later, even there was a spate of press, Ivory, Oliver Stone, conspiracy crank Oliver Stone is going to do a, a show on TWA. This was New York Times. It was Newsweek. It was. It was daily news. It was all these major papers that just like in line, like little soldiers came out with the same story about conspiracy crank Oliver Stone. I hadn't even spoken to Oliver about what I was going to do. Wow. He had no idea. Wow. And I actually wrote, it was Periscope and Newsweek. And I actually wrote to them and I said, you know, I... I was assigned to do this piece. I don't give a damn what Oliver Stone thinks about what's going on with TWA. He hired me because I've been looking into this and I'm an investigative reporter. And I'm sure that uh, he knows that I'm just going to pursue the truth. Anyway, no response or anything like that. But so this was a very orchestrated thing. And that's when I started realizing this is this is a very big deal. They don't want the truth to come out. But again, it's not just the FBI. So someone like notified all the media in unison to push out a story that makes fun of ABC for covering this basically. Yes. Peer pressuring ABC out of covering it. And not only, not only did they shut down the TWA story, they shut down the entire series. Wow. And Oliver Stone who did JFK and got all kinds of grief for that for years and years and years said, told the producer who hired me, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me professionally. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And um, how long after the crash was that? Um, It was a, it was a few years. Mm -hmm. It was a few years after that. I can't remember exactly. So you were in the process, you had, you said you were doing a group eyewitness interview. I think you've mentioned before that there were dozens of eyewitnesses who saw what appeared to be three missiles is what I read. Well, what, first of all, let's be clear. I, there eyewitnesses of the eyewitnesses who saw the origin of a streak of light that went up to the plane and there were. I think there were 120 of them, around 120, if I recall correctly. 96 said that streak of light originated on the Earth's surface. Okay? And that was a big problem. 
That was a big problem for the FBI. It was a big problem for the CIA in particular, which is why the CIA got involved in preparing an animation that showed that the eyewitnesses did not see what they said they saw. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses, hundreds. But what the, what the CIA did, and if you go on YouTube, Tom Stalkup, a physicist, he actually broke down how they put together their ruse um, because the, the FBI used the CIA's animation to back out of the investigation. What they did was, you know, sound takes time to travel. Mm -hmm. So the people who actually saw the originating event, the, the streak going up to the, uh, didn't hear any explosions first. They, they saw this thing and, and ex exploded. And then they heard the, the CIA conveniently put those eyewitnesses in a black box. They only focused on eyewitnesses who heard something and then looked up. And by that time, the originating event had occurred. So that's, that's how they managed to pull the wool over the eyes of the public. And that was very convenient for the FBI to pull itself away. And that's probably why the FBI would not allow the National Transportation Safety Board, who had a legal mandate, legal mandate to investigate this crash on its own, but allowed the FBI to take over based on, oh, it's a criminal event, even though the FBI never officially gave them the word about the circumstances that made them think, which they have to do before they start their investigation. But this was bigger than the paychecks of the top people at the National Transportation Safety Board, clearly, because the CIA was involved and also DOD was involved. So after years-long investigation, I read that the NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, which, by the way, is in th – they're always in charge of investigating any sort of plane crash. Yeah, uh, they're the premier so, plane crash agency right. in the world. And I've, and I've dealt with them uh, as I've covered uh, plane crashes throughout my career. Um, but they, they finally came out – I read that they finally came out saying that it was um, – some sort of ma mechanical uh, malfunction inside the plane, for something, uh, a spark origina originating inside the plane. Um, In the fuel tank. They said, uh, basically they said that because the airplane had been sitting on the tarmac for a long time, there was very little fuel in the center wing fuel tank. And so it kind of vaporized. And then there were some frayed wires, possibly there were some frayed wires in the fuel tank that, that rubbed up against each other and caused the spark and blew up the fuel tank. Now, the, re <laughs> the reason why that's ridiculous, first of all, they never, they admitted they never found any wiring that, that did that, uh, any frayed wiring or anything like that. This, they just posited that. The other thing is, is all the forensic evidence that points to a very, high explosive event, not like a, not a, what's called a deglifration. Oh God, forget the word. But anyway, um, it's, it's a low order explosion. It was a, it would have been a low order explosion in the fuel tank. This, this explosion that caused 
uh, the TWA to explode was of on the order of ordnance, explosive ordnance, because when that plane got hit, stuff came out of that plane at more than four times the speed of sound. That's a lot of energy. A little, a little explosion in the fuel tank cannot cause, cause that. The other thing is, is they did a lot of testing of fuselage inside and out, and they had a lot of positive hits for explosives. And what would happen is when they had positive hits, the FBI would take those pieces and then they would send them to Washington and come back and say, oh, uh, actually, those were false positives. And they kept getting so many hits. We were told this by the bomb tech who was who was testing the pieces. First, he told us that the Aegis machine testing the explosives uh, for explosives had a lot of false positives. He says we had multiple hits, but this machine had a lot of false positives. And we talked to the head of the FBI lab at the time and to the inventor of the machine. And he said, that's, that's just not true. They both said, that's just not true. And then what happened is after they started getting more and more hits, they just stopped testing for explosives. Wow. Um, yeah. And you, originally you were going to get right to the bottom of it, test that seat foam for yeah. rock, solid rocket missile fuel, uh, you know, and prove whether a missile was involved in all this. Um, so those eyewitnesses you talked to, they, they saw something some of them thought was a missile um, come off of the ground. Now this crash happened off the coast of Long Island. So what what ground did, did they see it come off of? What area? Well, along the coast, somewhere along well, the Long coast Island. and possibly off the water also, uh, possibly oh. off the water. Oh. Uh, if, you, if you watch our documentary, TWA Flight 800, which I think you can watch it on Amazon. Um, yeah, so... By the way, viewers, she finally came out with a full documentary on this, investigating it, and I linked the documentary <laughs> down below. That The video I played at the beginning was the teaser for the documentary, right. but I, I've linked it down below if you guys want to watch. But go on. It took That took 17 years. That took 17 wow. years. Yeah. It, and um, yes, I mean, we had eyewitnesses who saw it rising uh, out of the water, and we had one... Um, a, a guy who was, I, he was, I, I forget if he was an assistant a prince. His name was Joseph Delgado. He worked for a school and um, he was standing there and he saw, he said he heard a thunk and then he saw something go up fairly close to where he was on the school grounds. So we, we tried to triangulate somewhat the trajectory of the, the streaks of light and that caused the explosion. But um where exactly we we did not report that in the in the documentary but uh, the radar evidence showing stuff coming out at Mach 4 uh also the the type of the damage to the interior of the plane cuz we had these whistleblowers we had five or six wow. people who were high level members of the original official investigation who came forward and worked with us, me and Tom Stalkup, a, a very a brilliant physicist, to review all the evidence and look for more evidence. And of course, when they were working on the, which is when they were working on the official investigation, this is a classic cover-up technique. Uh, everything was compartmentalized. Mm. 
And the other thing that's a classic cover-up technique is they were all told, okay, do all your investigating, but we do not want you to write an analysis of what you found. Hmm. So Hank Hughes, Senior National Transportation Safety Board Aviation Accident Investigator, he said that if he'd been allowed to write his analysis, he said what he found was the damage pattern inside the plane was random. Just random, you know, people people here were completely destroyed, people over here more or less intact. And he explained that that can only occur with a high energy explosion. He said if it had just been a deflagration, that's the term I was trying to find before, a deflagration, which is a, a contained explosion in the fuel tank, which was uh, caused by a, a not very strong, um, uh, you know, source of energy, which is diesel, you know, jet A fuel is like kerosene. Uh, what you get is a deflagration, which would which would have a burn pattern very close to where it had uh, it had exploded, and that wasn't the case. There, were, this this was a very violent explosion, and there was all there was random damage, and there was random damage also to the uh, and the injuries of the passengers was also quite random. You know, some people were quite intact, other people were, you know. blown to smithereens. So let's cut to the big question here. Who would want to intentionally down this plane and why would the FBI want to cover it up? I will say this. I do not think, and I, I believe my colleagues on my team would agree with me that this was not intentional. So what's being protected here are possibly circumstantial evidence points to um, big budgets, years and years of research. Um, You know, this is uh, is a big government cover-up, big government cover-up, and there are several across several agencies. So that tells me that Agencies are being protected. They're protecting themselves. They're protecting big budgets that go on over decades, big, big money, uh, that kind of thing. Because if it had been a terrorist off, you know, and they you know, tried that whole stinger missile thing, that's another thing they would do is they would test for a stinger missile when they knew that the damage to the fuselage did not indicate that type of missile did it. Hmm. Okay. So they would do testing that was irrelevant. Like when they tested, they tried to blow up a fuel, the fuel tank to, to recreate the damage done to the plane. They use butane, which is far more, far more explosive than jet a fuel. And they just, you know, of course they could not reproduce what had happened anyway. Um, very powerful interests. And, and, and this is when I first had to really wrap my mind around the idea that government agencies are like little nations unto themselves and that they are like a conglomerate of nations when it comes to events like this 
they really do protect each other. So you're saying a government agency may have accidentally missled this plane? Well, you have to look at the circumstances that were what was going on in the area at the time. I mean, that's one of the first things you do is say, well, what was happening here at the time? And there were military exercises going on. You know, I mean, I could I could get into that chapter and verse, but, you know, I'd rather not. I'll just say that. And but first, before you look, you know, you t- it's very good to have that. Keep that in mind. Yes, military exercises were going on that night. But the most important thing to look at first and foremost is the forensic evidence. And that's what we did. That's what our show is all about. We, we use the government's own experts, people who were deeply troubled and haunted by the fact that they were, their work was undermined and they were not allowed to do their work properly. And the FBI that had absolutely no aviation accident experience, none, hmm. none took over. In fact, Hank Hughes, the uh, National Transportation Safety Board senior accident investigator who's in our show, he had to train them. He had to train them. The other thing is the FBI, which I don't even know why they don't do it for their own cases. The FBI, it writes summaries of what eyewitnesses say. It does not faithfully record every word that eyewitnesses say. It's the weirdest thing. Whereas the National Transportation Safety Board does. So from the very beginning, allowing the FBI to come in and take over was part of the cover up. Wow. Yeah. And just uh, for the anniversary of this crash, you had um, Hank Hughes and TSB on your radio show. I was going to play a clip from that where he talks about the FBI just kind of appearing and getting involved. Here it is. For every NTSB investigator, there were probably uh, 50 or 60 FBI and ATF agents. And I, I don't say that. that uh, uh, I think that's accurate. That it was amazing to see the, the number of people. Uh, nobody, nobody came out from the FBI and said, hey, we're in charge. They just acted like they were and basically you know they were the guys carrying the guns so um yeah by the way you can listen to that whole radio interview link down in my description i got all christina's links in there um okay so a lot of my viewers asked about the passenger list because a lot of people are still wondering if the fbi was so desperate to cover this up was there someone on that plane that the government wanted to get rid of. Well, bring up Washington. What was it? The uh, Washington Post has a list of the passengers. I'm going to bring that list up on my screen as you talk about it. I, uh, nothing points to that. And I'll, I'll tell you why nothing, nothing points to that because in the beginning, by the way, the FBI really was gung ho to get to the truth of the matter. It wasn't. It was all of a sudden that Jim Castrum, who was in in charge of the FBI's investigation, he did an about face because he was looking for a bomb. He thought it was a bomb. Okay, all of a sudden he did an about face, and the CIA did this animation that I told you about. This fraudulent animation, 
And by the way, there was a guy inside the National Transportation Safety Board, a relatively new employee named David Mayer, who worked with the CIA on on these eyewitness uh, on this eyewitness animation. Okay, and then he was the one, by the way, who testified after. After they do, the National Transportation Safety Board does an investigation. They have what's called a sunshine hearing where they talk about all their research and uh, they give their conclusion. David Mayer, for some reason, all of a sudden was the one to give the eyewitness. He, he gave the eyewitness report, even though he wasn't the chairman of the eyewitness committee. He gives the eyewitness report. And what does he do? He takes two main witnesses Joseph Delgado and another guy, um, Meyer, okay, who, who was a Vietnam helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Anyway, he takes these two guys who are main witnesses and he misrepresents their accounts so that they cannot, so he can say, yeah, they didn't see anything that looked anything like a missile, even though they both did. So and and David Mayer, another thing that he did, he was in charge of a a database um, that that was supposed to document where all the pieces of the plane fell, which is very important because the first pieces, you know, they had three debris fields, you know, where the first pieces fell and then where the next ones and the next ones. And by that, you can sort of tell how the plane broke up and it, it can give you clues about what happened. And what kind of force hit the plane? And he changed some tags around, okay, so that it would better fit the government's um, uh, exploding fuel tank scenario. So there was all kind, kinds of shenanigans. They, some of the uh, people who were going to talk at the Sunshine hearing, some of the investigators and parties to the investigation were threatened to shut up. Okay, by the NTSB's investigator in charge, you know, the FBI and the CIA made sure that no eyewitnesses testified and that the NTSB did not have access to the eyewitnesses directly, only to the FBI's uh, 302 summaries. And even those were probably edited. So the whole thing is just a travesty. It's, it's, it, it's not only fraud, waste, and abuse. They literally use the taxpayer's money against the taxpayer. Oh my gosh. That's just so horrifying. And um, it's just so fascinating. You think that these huge media corporations, a lot of viewers still think that these journalists are news hounds who are going to get to the bottom of the truth and hold the powerful accountable. They're not allowed to. They're not allowed to, and they know it. They know it. Do but- do most media insiders know that? I think I think a lot of them um, spend many years in there. I, I know I did. I spent many years in the corporate news, thinking that when that big investigation came to me, that that I would be able to hold the powerful accountable. You know, and. Um, I think each one kind of finds out where their limits lie on that. Well, you know, after 
after this happened to me, I, I did publish a book called Into the Buzzsaw, Leading Journalists Expose the Myth of a Free Press. Instead of just doing Christina's little story, I knew people would say, oh, she was just disgruntled or whatever. I decided to gather a bunch of accounts mm-hmm. by uh, investigative reporters talking about running into censorship. And and Gary Webb, I, I don't know if you know who he was, but Gary Webb was the one who exposed CIA drug dealing in Los Angeles, crack crack cocaine, their connection to the crack cocaine epidemic in, in Los Angeles. And he was, oh, he was hounded. He was the first reporter to actually put all his backup documents and evidence on the internet. So it was a huge, I mean, it sparked uh, congressional hearings and everything. He ended up killing himself. They, they literally hounded him to death. But his, in, in my book, his account is the only first person account of what happened to him. And so I was, this book, when it came out, I was actually quite terrified because I thought, oh my God, people are going to come after me. But I think the whole journalism world was really shocked to see how, how vast the censorship mechanism is in this country. And I don't know if it's because your generation, I mean, you're young, I guess when you get in, you're still naive (laughs) or was. Well, you really, I I mean, you really want to, I believed I was a true believer. I I can't even describe what I went through. I was, I was in the fetal position after what happened to me at CBS. Mm -hmm. And then I decided to get up and, and fight and expose it. But it, it, it took a hot minute, you know, because it's so shocking. And then you realize it's so big. Yeah. and you have to just keep plugging away. I mean, that's why I have these two radio shows, you know, because I just feel like, okay, I've got to, I've got to keep going. Somehow this has to keep, people have to keep understanding what the, what the facts are, get the, give, keep giving the truth to the people and maybe, and more and more people are, I think, wising up to what's going on. How is it, do you think that the, all the media outlets are controlled. All of these major news corporations. Oh, well, uh, one way is, um, you know, the FCC. I mean, it's happened. In my, in my second book, Feet to the Fire, which is about how uh, reporters, again, firsthand interviews with reporters, uh, news executives, et cetera, talking about being intimidated uh, when it came to trying to report the truth on the line that went on to get us into the war in Iraq. Okay. Um, I think it was Jim Bamford who said, uh, investigative reporter, really, really interesting guy. Basically they say, look, if, uh, the FCC regulates television and if they don't, that's the government's lever of power against, uh, against the TV business. So you think the FCC is threatening? New has, it has, it has in the past. I, I think I definitely, it has, you know, it'll review your licenses and so on and so forth. Uh-huh. Things have changed since then because there's so many outlets, you know, the, there's the, the media landscape has changed so much because of, of new technology. Now I, I think these, and of course there were always the business interests who is paying who is paying a lot of the corporate TV bills right now? It's big pharma. That's why you can't report on the 
the sea illness, as you like to call it. <laughs> right. You know, the sea illness and the, the V things. Yeah, the needle. Are, oh, yeah, the needle. You can't talk about that. Okay? Right. Because if you turn on your TV, who's paying everybody's salary? Big Pharma. Yeah. So that's the connection. I yeah, I was wondering Jeez. if that is what it was with Fox. I know, you know, after I blew the whistle on Fox's corruption, you interviewed me and you 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 know, said you could relate with your story. Our you know, both of us being reporters on the ground censored and I always wondered, you know, people always asked me why my bosses censored me and I didn't know I don't I still don't know who was controlling my bosses. But I know my bosses were getting pressure from in Houston. We're getting pressure from New York. Well, the yes. I mean, the, the executives who are looking at the bottom line, who are looking at the money, the yeah. income flow. Oh, uh, whether whether pharmaceutical companies would pull their ads out. Of course, they would pull their ads. Because my coverage was drug related. Yes. Yeah. Could yes. be. Yes. Yes. Of course. So you and and nowadays too, you have to understand business and government are uh, completely all business agent business has captured it's called regulatory capture have captured virtually all the major agencies that pertain that could affect them okay so this is where we are right now that's why you and i are talking here on your show you know which is on Streamyard. right um, okay, we got this super chat. Amazing guest, super interesting, great interview. Thank you. Yes, Christina's amazing. She's got her own YouTube channel and BitChute. Um, link down in description for both of those. Um, bit yeah, shoot. the BitChute is the complete because YouTube has censored me a couple of times. So there are certain programs I do on the needle and the C and now the M. <laughs> Okay, monkeypox. I, I haven't been censored yet for saying monkeypox, so I'm going to say it on YouTube. Okay. But yeah, I want, and I know we've gone over time right now, but I, before you leave, if you have time, I want to ask you about your monkeypox coverage because you um, have some very interesting guests on your show who talked about um, smallpox and monkeypox. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, Dr. Meryl Nass, who is among many things, you know, she treats um, patients with the illness. She's an internist. Uh, they've, they've, uh, they're trying to yank her medical license because she was a proponent of, she is a proponent of early treatment for the C illness. Uh, also writes, and she's also an epidemic analyst. And first thing uh, we were talking about how the interesting thing about monkeypox is generally when you have an epidemic beginning it comes out of somewhere it comes out of somewhere and it spreads from there so you can see this you know the spread is makes sense but monkeypox it appeared like this boop, 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 all these different places mm. and what Merrill said was this is an indication that monkeypox was in a test tube moved around in a test tube. So I thought that was interesting. And the other thing about monkeypox is the U.S. government has a huge stockpile of vaccines 
for monkeypox that were bought. I think it was, did Obama, I think um, Obama bought this drug and paid uh, 180% above uh, the price that had been previously paid for smallpox vaccines. So there's, I, I just did a recent interview with Merrill that people should watch on the whistleblower newsroom. It's all the whistleblower newsroom, one word on bitshoot.com. Link down in the description. Okay. Which where she talks about, this is a money-making proposition for big pharma and for the government. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because they, they commission, they commission these zines to give to Medicare patients and so on. And um, you know, who knows who gets money also, along the way <clears throat> for these buys. So the whole thing is kind of scandalous because the needles are dangerous. They're not safe. Hmm. And there hasn't been a, enough testing on one of them. There hasn't been any human testing on it. The new and, monkeypox needle. Yes. No human testing it. No human testing. And the, the other thing is, is that monkeypox is not, first of all, there are not that many cases. And secondly, it's not a terrible disease. It's, it's, you know, you get these symptoms. I think they're sort of. Um, like chicken pox. I think it's like these welts. on your- You get a flu-like illness followed by a rash that resolves, she said. So it's nothing terrible. And, and so this whole, there's this constant drumbeat of fear that they're trying to generate. It's vid, it's monkeypox, but it's back. You know, now we have this, this new variant, variant and that new variant. And of course, people don't realize that with viruses, viruses over time become weaker and weaker and weaker. And also, even with flu, like the flu scene, they don't really know what the next variant is going to be. I mean, they make up a scene based on what they think it might be. This brings you into a, a larger question, which obviously we don't have the time to go into. What scenes should be mandatory from zero to from cradle to grave and which ones should not? There should be, I think, a gigantic review of all that. But well, my perspective as a free American is zero needles should be mandatory. I I agree. I agree with you. I think that every time somebody is confronted with a needle, they should be told, okay, this is for this. And this is it. It can do this to your body. It could do that to your body. And I'll tell you, there is something weird going on because what's happening is the immune systems of our children are wonky and nobody wants to look at the possible nobody officially wants to look at the possible connection between things and immuno you know immunological illnesses that have just skyrocketed in this country as a matter of fact there was a recent chinese study that said that um kids in the united states children in the united states the autism has risen 50 percent since 2017 Meryl now did talk about how there should be a sane review of things. And we should not be donating little tiny babies when their immune systems are just, 
you know, we should protect our immune systems. Our immune systems are geniuses. They're the ones that can really heal us. Yes, sometimes with help, but this is, but now that you have, ever since Big Pharma has been allowed to advertise on TV, now they want to take over our immune systems because there's a lot of money in that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, your coverage is necessary, I think. So I appreciate you coming on and um, sharing with my viewers what you're up to, um, asking these questions that the corporate news refuses to ask. Thank you so much for going over on time with me. It's been a fascinating conversation with my you. My pleasure. My pleasure, Irene. And again, viewers, you can look um, directly at what she's talking about with her monkeypox coverage and other coverage link down in my description. Uh, Christina, all the best to you. And thank you so much. Well, thank you for your work too, Ivory. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.